You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community on Wondery Country. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with myself, Aitwin. This week, we're looking at the Great Barrier Reef and the politicisation and misinformation that surrounds this natural wonder. Since colonisation, the Great Barrier Reef has been the subject of national interest and identity, with lots of controversies and arguments about how we view the reef, how we value it, and, unfortunately, from a very colonial perspective, how we extract value from it. The Great Barrier Reef is located along the northern east coast of Australia and is sea country for more than 70 different traditional owner groups. It is also home to a staggering 10% of the world's coral reef ecosystems. In 2016, the Great Barrier Reef made headlines after it was impacted by a mass bleaching event. Now, bleaching is when warm ocean temperatures trigger a stress response in coral, which can lead to damage or death of coral. The 2016 event was the worst bleaching on record, with the severity of coral death being attributed to climate change and increased warming of sea temperatures. Earlier this year, the Great Barrier Reef experienced another bleaching event. This time, the impact of bleaching was rated major to severe across the reef, which means 30 to 60% of the coral was exposed to bleaching. This year's event was of special concern as it occurs in a La Nina year, typically a wetter and colder season. It also marks the fourth bleaching event since 2016, and the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, the government body in charge of the reef and monitoring and research of the reef, says that these bleaching events are getting more regular in occurrence and increasing in severity. However, political attention to the reef has been contentious. In 2021, Australia narrowly avoided having the Great Barrier Reef listed on the UNESCO's World Heritage Site after significant lobbying from the coalition. Now in 2022, with a new government, new Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek has set a domestic target to protect 30% of land and sea areas by 2030, noting the Great Barrier Reef in her first National Press Club address in July. So on this episode of Earth Matters, I thought we'd dig in a little bit to the misinformation and the politicisation around what is one of Australia's biggest natural wonders. To do so, we'll have Dr Zoe Richards from the Curtin University come on to talk about one of the most recent misconceptions around coral cover and the Great Barrier Reef, followed then by Rowan Lloyd, an adjunct professor and environmental historian at Townsville, looking at the long history of politicisation of the reef and what our political story looks like today. Last month, the Australian Institute of Marine Science released a report showing increased coral cover in sections of the Great Barrier Reef. In fact, in sections of the reef, coral cover was recorded at a 30-year record high. Now, online, many took this as cause for celebration. Yay, the climate catastrophists are wrong. Coral cover saves the reef. Why are all these environmentalists so Debbie Downers constantly? But they missed out on a few important facts. The first was that the Ames report itself noted that whilst the increase of coral demonstrated resilience in the Great Barrier Reef, there continues to be cumulative stresses, including bleaching events and outbreaks of crown of thorn starfish and tropical cyclones. 
to understand the misnomer around coral cover a little bit better, I invited Dr. I caught up with Dr. Zoe Richards from Curtin University to discuss this most recent report and how we guard ourselves against misinformation around the reef. In your article, you suggested that coral cover was a catfish metric when understanding the health of the reef. Could you please explain why that is? Okay, well, coral cover is just a general measure of habitat condition. So it really only gives you a very superficial understanding about what's going on the reef. And especially when you collect it using manta tow. So that technique involves being towed behind a vessel in the water and just looking down from the surface of the water at the top of the reef. So you get a one-dimensional top view of the reef. So if there are fast-growing corals that grow sideways, like what appears to be going on on the reef at the moment, it looks from the surface like there is a lot of coral down there. And obviously that seems like that's really fantastic. But if you actually were down in the water and looking closer, Um, documenting species, you would realise that there's only a small number of species there and there's not a lot of diversity, not a lot of diversity in shapes and sizes and ages and different types of coral. And we also don't know anything about the health of those corals. So those corals may actually be diseased or they could have other things going on with them. So there's a whole heap of information that we don't know about the corals by the coral cover metric. So that's what when I refer to you being potentially catfished by coral cover because it looks good superficially, but what's actually going on behind that surface view, we really don't know. And just on those other metrics, understanding the benefit of those other metrics are in coral maturity and coral diversity. What's what's the strengths of these of having older corals and having more diverse corals? So what you really want to do in a community is have a mixture of corals. You want young ones, you want old mature ones that are are spawning because it's often the large colonies that are providing most of the new spawn into the community. You want different shapes of corals, different sizes because there's certain species specialise on certain types of coral, for example, one type of butterfly fish will just associate with one type of coral. Another type of barnacle might be associated with only a single type of coral. So the more diversity of coral you have, the more diversity of associated animals you have. And amongst all that community, you want to have breeding corals, new juvenile corals, and the full complexity of a community comes in when you've got all the size ranges and all the diverse types and shapes. I was wondering if you thought there were any like common misconceptions around reef health. I mean, we're looking at one misconception with coral cover and sort of the misinformation campaign uh, that sort of spawned from that, from people not understanding the science. Are there any sort of other pitfalls that you see the public falling into around reef science? Well, I think partly, you know, I've, I study coral biodiversity. So for me, biodiversity is a big issue. We, it's very difficult to identify marine species 
to a species level because there's just so many species out there. You need a really high level of expertise as well as you need a lot of time in the water and you need to be collecting samples in many cases. So it's really complex. So quite a lot of the time people use the word biodiversity managers or in management plans. And the overall intention is to protect biodiversity by having a world heritage area or a marine park. But quite often no one is collecting biodiversity data. So we don't actually know if the regulations that we have in place, the green zone or the other type of protections that we have in place are actually benefiting the biodiversity or not because data isn't being collected at that level and it's not being reported at that level. So I feel like that's always a, a big knowledge gap that we have Like the intention is to protect biodiversity, but are we actually achieving that? We can't say. Right, and the last thing I wanted to ask for public interacting with reef science and I suppose in your in your field of biodiversity, what do you think uh, users should be doing when, when they see information, when they see reports like the, this one we're talking about from Ames? What do you think should be done to sort of avoid misunderstanding or misconceptions or misinformation? Yeah, look, it's really tricky, isn't it? I guess you just sort of build a, a trusted network of, you know, advisors, really. And it's hard to work out, you know, who to trust. And that's a, and a relationship building situation over time. And just to see who is citing literature and, you know, who is being respected by their peers, those kind of things is to pass the quality control test. But you know, it's really about not always believing everything that you first hear and just think about it, you know, yourself and within your own experience. And with this coral reef and coral cover example, there's a nice analogy to forests. So you could look at a forest after a bushfire from a plane or a helicopter and just see the canopies growing back. But does that tell you much about the recovery of that forest? No, it doesn't, because maybe underneath that canopy, it could be overtaken by weeds. There could be no insects. There could be no marsupials. So without getting down on the ground level and collecting more data, we really can't say how well that forest has recovered. So it's the same sort of situation. So, you know, asking questions, thinking about things a little more deeply and just continuing to have these conversations and educate yourself about these issues, you know, that that's the best we can really hope for. We're all, you know, putting forward hypotheses a lot of the time and then trying to collect evidence to substantiate their hypotheses either way. And the world is a very dynamic place. So things are changing all the time and our knowledge is growing all the time. So it, it's a fluid <laughs> dynamic in terms of what to believe and what not to believe. So you just need to not not be closed-minded and keep the mind open and keep being flexible and keep learning. And, you know, we all do that together and we move on. That was Dr. Zoe Richards from Curtin University talking about a recent report and how to spot misinformation. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Coming up is an interview with Rowan Lloyd. He'll be talking about the significance of the Great Barrier Reef's history in understanding politicisation of the Great Barrier Reef. He'll also mention Gabrumpa a few times. He's referring to the Great 
Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. G'day, I'm Rowan Lloyd. I'm an adjunct history lecturer from James Cook University and a uh, high school teacher on unceded Wogarukaba country or Towns Hall. You're asking a historian what's the, uh, the benefit of understanding the past. I think it's just immeasurably useful. Um, there's obviously a really clear use in understanding the biological or ecological or geological drivers of the reef's uh, ecosystem for, from a management point of view. But increasingly, given the complexities of the problems thrown up by uh, climate change and um, change generally, uh, we need to consider the human involvement in the particular issues. And in order to sort of solve those problems or come to some sort of accord, we really do need to look into human interaction with the reef through time. So the past is a really great repository of all sorts of evidence and stories and ideas about how we have thought about, acted with, responded to the reef and the way it's changed over time. In your work, you've said the Great Barrier Reef is often tied to notions of national identity for Australia. And you've used terms such as, you know, it's the different contested valuations or the process of politicisation. And I get you to explain those concepts. How do we take, you know, what is a big environmental uh, landscape and, and apply these metrics to them? The idea of valuing the reef, I guess it's a term that I really like through um, threw up as a sort of simplify my own understandings of the way that people talked about the reef in the past. So for me and with the reef, there was two really strong threads of, I say, like valuation that emerged. And one is its value in terms of its economic value. So what is the monetary value that can be taken from the reef? And I'm talking there in terms of extractive industries. So fishing, um, uh, mining for minerals, mining for petroleum, um, extracting corals for ornamental um, commercial use, um, but also tourism as well. I, th I, th I think that's a pretty important um, economic value of the reef. And then the other one is a sort of more broader sort of classification. It's, it's natural valuations or it's natural value. Um, and I'd probably put into there that it's its value as a, uh, as a, for scientific knowledge and scientific pursuit, its value in terms of its cultural value, so it's its site for cultural heritage, both to Indigenous Australians and even European or non-Indigenous or settler Australians. And then finally, just as a sort of its existence, it's when people talk about the reef, they often talk about its beauty as an important value, that it has this wonderment that can't necessarily be described but can definitely be appreciated and therefore valued. So I sort of put all three of those or four maybe into um, that broader idea of its natural values. Um, and in terms of its politicisation, as soon as you put values onto something, I think, and I might be completely wrong um, in my understanding of politics here, but as soon as you put uh, a value on something, uh, Yes, it has like an economic sort of um, dynamic there, but there's also this idea that, well, it might be more valuable to another person or to a group or someone's valuation uh, might outcompete another valuation. Um, and so the politics of the reef really becomes about this idea of how or whose values um, are being, I guess, in, for in environmental purposes, protected or managed. You've, you've written on management of the reef since Federation. Could you kind of give us a brief insight into what the last century 
has been, I know I'm asking you to synopsize a bit here, but the, right. the broad approach to the Great Barrier Reef. My research really did focus on Settler Australia, um, like sort of perceptions of the reef. And I did look to, um, before Federation, but definitely since Federation and in particularly since um, Queensland was established as its own colony, there was sort of, there was never ever like a sort of um, binality or dichotomy between those who wanted to exploit the reef and those who wanted to protect the reef. Um, most of the time, even the people who in, contem- in like contemporary Australia, 21st century, we would assume would want to protect the reef, people like natural historians or scientists, those people also wanted to exploit the reef. So there was these sort of entangled ideas or valuations of the reef. So like that, that dual sort of appreciation of it's, it's really beautiful, but we need to have value um, and value or economic value from the reef is really important. It sort of carried its way all the way through till about 1970 when the biggest sort of conservation moment occurred. And then that idea that we need to manage the reef's competing valuations, this idea that it needs to be exported and we need to draw money from it, but also manage its environment and the competing uses of it through time that was basically enshrined into the legislation around the great barrier reef marine park authority and and, you know it was born out of that conservation moment i want to talk a little bit more about that conservation moment you focused on it in a 2016 paper which, you've, which you call Coral Battleground, re-examining the Save the Reef campaign. Um, and I thought it was interesting because you, fr- you said it exists as a social controversy. No one's opposed to the Great Barrier Reef itself, but there's an ongoing disagreement about how to manage it and that sort of struggle for power and resources. Can you tell us a little bit about the lessons you learned from looking into the campaign and, yeah, what you sort of found from examining this campaign? You know, when you're researching the history of the reef, the most amount of writing that's been done about it is around the Save the Reef campaign. Um, and the most important book that's been written about that particular period was Judith Wright's The Coral Battleground. And it's a great book. It's um, remarkably accurate. Um, she writes that she's writing from her own perspective and that uh, what's missing is the perspective of her opponent and she frames it really specifically as the Department of Mines um, which was what it was called and and the Minister for Mines in the Queensland Government. Now in the history of this this event a lot of people start to I think in my understanding or the broader reading that I did around it was that they framed it as this David versus Goliath encounter Um, and I think that's you know, understandable given what we know about environmental campaigns today. You know, it's often environmental campaigns are against big corporations that have huge amounts of power that, uh, and the people who are fighting against it are local, often marginalised groups. Um, and that's a comfortable way of, you know, reframing that particular period of the reef's history. But the more I read about it, um, it seemed to me, and even just reading Judith Wright's book, that the biggest issues weren't necessarily against those big corporations and um, and the government, which they very rarely came into contact with, but it was actually amongst themselves. You know, the personal politics, personal relationships between scientists and conservations really eroded those natural alliances that we imagine could exist. 
and the people that were actually involved in the campaign, uh, they weren't uh, minnows in the Australian culture at all. You know, Judith Wright was an established um, liter um, literature icon. Um, John Boost, who was a major figure in the campaign too, even though he was living on Bingle Bay, which is a small township in um, about two hours north from where I live. His best friend was the Prime Minister. Um, you know, the people who ran these big conservation organisations were uh, former High Court judges. You know, these weren't small-scale people. And they had the widespread support of the media, including the Australian newspaper. You know, they were supported by farmers. They were supported by trade unions. So the idea that it was a... Um, a small group of ragtag people versus big corporations didn't sit comfortably with my analysis. And I thought the biggest story here was that everybody loved the reef, that everybody wanted to see the reef protected. Since the paper, there's been a lot yep. more political contention around the reef. We've had lobbying and counter-lobbying to have the reef listed on protected heritage sites. We've had the downgrading of the reef's yep. health and we've had even an independent expert panel yep. created. What do you think are the parallels in terms of the political situation today and what you've seen in your research? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's a completely different ballgame, uh, but there are some parallels. What was really interesting to me about that particular period of time, the Save the Reef campaign, um, you know, people would frame it as a crisis because, you know, it was a real possibility that a lot of the reef would be um, peppered with oil rigs or there could have been, um, you know, mining of lime up and down the reef and you know that would have considerably changed the environment so that was a crisis um, but also at that time there was a crisis in the lack of knowledge about the reef too so the government and in this case the Queensland government they were acutely aware of how little they knew about the reef um, and what they were trying to do was to have the appearance that they knew what they were talking about Right, so that was really important. So they would latch onto any scientific paper that they could, or any scientific report that they could, um, and use that as, um, I guess, a weapon, so to speak, politically speaking, uh, like figuratively speaking. Sorry, um, a political weapon to sort of um, justify their political stance or their policy stance. Today, though, our current governments they have the benefit of because of the establishment of Grabrumpa and then AIM, and AIMS and the research that comes out of universities like JCU and UQ, they have a huge amount of understanding about the reef and all kinds of understandings about how humans interact with it and how the degradation that has occurred, the decline in coral reefs. So they have the science, but what they aren't doing is, uh, I would say, putting in appropriate policy measures to protect the reef. So... They're trying to make the appearance that they are saving the reef. So, you know, I read some of these situations at times, particularly, you know, for example, the huge amount of funding provided to the GBRF. Um, obviously, that was useful funding. It's gone into resilient projects, but the criticisms from the scientific community, um, and, you know, politicians themselves suggest that this is one measure that they can use um, to suggest that they are saving the reef. But definitely the intervention into those uh, reports by um, United Nations and um, the World Heritage um, listings, you know, that says to me that the governments probably spend a lot of time trying to appear as if they are saving the reef um, and not necessarily putting in, the, in, putting in the policies that would do the trick. 
Your paper acknowledges that the current situation is also changed by uh, the rise of social media and new pressure on journalists and this sort of policy paradox between wanting to be seen acting on the reef and actually acting. But how do you see the conversations and story, political story around the reef currently playing out or what, what's interesting you in the current, in the current story that we're living in? Um, what's, I guess what's particularly interesting to me currently is the, uh, I guess it's not a division, it's not quite an argument, but it's definitely a divide that exists between scientists um, who are concerned with the reef. Um, the government has put a lot of money into um, uh, reef research that focuses on, um, I guess, what you would call uh, restoration science. And, you know, that's really important work. It basically creates a, um, a temporal bridge between when we enact climate change policies that can, like globally, I mean, when, when the global sort of geopolitical world enacts policies that slow down or stabilise the climate, these restoration uh, projects will allow us to have reefs there to save or to um, restore but in the reef community um, or reef science community, there's definitely people on Twitter that are critical of that particular investment of research funding and are critical of the science. And that really throws up that question of how do we save the reef, which I find particularly interesting. Um, you know, there's scientists who uh, criticise the focus on, for example, uh, use of sunscreen on coral reefs and whether or not that's a meaningful intervention to uh, have. The idea, I've seen tweets about, um, you know, straws on the Great Barrier Reef and whether or not they're a real threat to coral reefs. Um, so I think that's an interesting uh, space. Um, but I do think that the way that people grapple onto these restoration ideas, these for most people, and I imagine this is why the media talks about them, and also imagine this is the way this is why the government uh, invests in them. So these are things that people can do. Um, and in this sort of crisis, where there's so much existential sort of threat that we, you know, that we perceive around us, we don't know about the future. These are things that we can manage, that we can control, we can feel part of, um, and. You know, that there's a reason, or I think that's a key reason, I think, why the media grapples onto it. Plus, it's small successes that they can have along the way. I think I was reading last week and I showed some of my students in an English class as well a story about um, coral spawning being done in a lab. That's a really important step. And the whole story was about hope, providing hope. Um, and that's an important part that the media can play is in providing hope. Because I think once there's lots of optimism about it, it might. In, um, encourage others to remain active in that space and continue to think about ways that they can continue to help the reef survive. So I think that's what they're doing. But it is interesting to see that divide between the scientists. But again, it throws back to those, like I was mentioning with the Save the Reef campaign, the way that these sort of politics around the science can erode these likely alliances. Because in the end, a lot of those scientists agree the biggest um, the thing that's having the biggest effect on climate on the reef is climate change. For those interested, Rowan will have a book coming out later this year on this issue, and you can follow that on his socials at Twitter at Rowan Lloyd. 
Today on the show, we heard from Dr. Zoe Richards and Rowan Lloyd. Please check out our rundowns where I have included links to both of their published works. Earth Matters would like to say thank you to the Community Radio Network for their hard work broadcasting today's episode and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.